Hey everyone, my name is Kyla. Welcome to my channel where I talk about the stock market and the economy amongst other things. Today we're going to be talking about the F around and find out quadrant. I'm going to censor it because some people are sensitive to curse words. Well, I actually do cuss a little. Do you? I'm going to be talking about the quadrant, what it means. And this is not actually invented by me. It's invented by BGR on Twitter and he's really awesome. He's such a good thinker. Ribbon Farm is one of my favorite ways to receive information. This is going to be talking about Elon Musk. It's going to be talking about Netflix. It's going to be talking about the yen. And then I, of course, am going to talk about individualism and the downfall of society. This is a pretty scientific quadrant. So it's called F around and find out quadrant. You have a couple of different options. The first one is F around and find out. In my opinion, that implies big change where people are like, I'm going into this and I'm going to make a decision. I'm going to make a big decision. The other one is F around and don't find out. And so I think that's being resistant to change because you're like effing around and potentially wasting people's time, but you're not operating with a change in mind. You're just kind of like messing around big time. And then of course, don't F around and find out. That means reasonable change in my opinion so people are like yes I'm willing to find out but I'm not going to F around I'm going to do this in like an orderly fashion and then don't F around and don't find out so I think this is stagnation you're not doing anything you're just kind of sitting still not like making any big decisions or not doing anything Elon Musk and Twitter I did a TikTok on this that's a little bit shorter <laughs> and probably a little bit more concise but Elon is trying to buy the bird app I talked about this last week if you want a full recap Elon he bought it that's all. He can afford it because now he has financing options. Banks are giving him money. He's agreeing to put up $21 billion of his own cash to try and buy Twitter. The whole thing that he is getting into is this concept of free speech. So like our free speech is being stifled and Twitter is stifling it and big tech is stifling it. And you know, you see people like Mark Andreessen tweeting about this too. And it's like, so funny to me they're tweeting and saying these things about their free speech being stifled uh, the onion did sort of like a, a good take on this where they were like we're being locked out of our account like retweet this tweet to show that you support i think that encompasses what i'm trying to say in the best format there's also examples that we can look to to see if like this elon musk buying twitter thing i guess go to free speech works out vote i think it's pronounced is was the reddit alternative so reddit went through their own suppressed we're being suppressed kind of thing and vote just shut down. So I think that, you know, it, it's all well and good to try and have platforms that support free speech. I think that when it gets harmful, that's when it's really bad. Uh, I worry that that line is, is not clear in the sand uh, and on what's harmful versus not. And then Netflix. So Netflix absolutely cratered on their really bad earnings. They've been raising subscription prices. They're cracking down on password sharing. And also they have grown a lot. They've got 220 million subscribers and 100 million sharing passwords. The size of the United States is 300 million people approximately. So they like, that's really a lot of market. And of course, like that's international as well, but they had a lot of growth pulled forward during the pandemic, I think, because we were locked inside for several months and people were watching a lot more Netflix than they used to. And so I think a lot of people either burned through shows that they would have taken a lot longer to watch or they just spent more time engaging with that content. So the well of content began to dry up and then you have that element of user saturation. So 220 million people is a lot. And like, sure, you can probably flip the 100 million who are sharing passwords and then you got some user growth. But it's kind of been this like, oh, like Netflix will always be growing. Netflix will always be doing well. And I think that 
this is a pillar of the stock market that is beginning to crumble a little bit. There's the streaming wars and the premium of consumer attention. So people want to go watch TikTok or they want to go watch Disney Plus, HBO Max, uh, Hulu. There's a lot of different options that consumers can do with their eyeballs. And then there's the decentralization of content. So CNN Plus uh, toppled this week, spent $300 million on it, and it was like alive for a month. And then they were like, no, never mind. And if you have 15 plus subscriptions to all these different channels, you're kind of like, okay, yikes, especially some of the pullback in Netflix growth is probably because of inflation because things are getting so expensive. So consumers are like, all right, peace out, buddies. Like I'm not paying this much anymore. It's prohibitively expensive. And so they're like, goodbye. I think that is sort of this subscription fatigue that we're seeing. And then also good content is hard. I think that Netflix spends a lot of money making relatively good content. Bridgerton and House of Cards and Game of Thrones, which I think is on Netflix, are all like super good things. It's super difficult to make good content. TV shows are art and art is kind of hard sometimes. Julia Alexander is a really good person to follow on Twitter if you're interested in more like streaming analysis. She does a great job. And then there's the macro regime. So I kind of talked about this. Netflix is a discretionary spend. So if people are like, yikes, it's getting real expensive out there, they're probably going to cut back some of their costs and streaming platforms are going to be one of the first things to go because, oh my gosh, I don't really need to watch TV right now. I need to buy food. And so I think that the inflationary pressures are going to put more pressure on Netflix. The first subscriber loss in decade could become a pattern versus an, an anomaly. So the quadrant, right? So F around and find out. Advertising is a great option for them, in my opinion. They're F around, they're finding out. Ben Thompson wrote a great piece on how this would make sense for Netflix, but essentially they offer a paid advertising tier. So people like me, I guess, who don't really care about ads are used to ads because of how we consume media every single day would pay a little bit less for a subscription that includes ads. Like I would pay $7 versus the $10.99 that Netflix currently is. And that's a great option. And as Ben wrote, Netflix demands scarce attention because of its investment in unique content. That attention can be sold and should be particularly as it increases Netflix's ability to invest in more unique content and or charge higher prices to its user base. And the markets like really beat them up. So they have to find an alternative. And this is a great way to F around and find out. And then F around and don't find out password crackdowns. So like they could start cracking down on passwords and people would be like, oh, dang it. Okay. I can't share my password with my aunt in Nebraska anymore. Consumers are already seeing them as like a company that's raising subscription prices, a company that's not listening to them as consumers and not, you know, renewing their favorite shows. And I think this could be harmful for them because it's like, oh, here they go again. They're being so stupid and they're trying to prevent us from sharing our passwords with my aunt Nancy in Nebraska. Don't F around and find out gaming focus of Reed Hastings, who's the CEO of Netflix. He's highlighted that as a focus for the company. He said with an interview in Insider, People want to lean back and be told good stories. That's Netflix. And the other part is interactive play, which grows into video gaming. But I think video games were like meant to be their saving grace, but video games are super competitive too. And it's a step outside their competency. Like it's a potential money pit spend and it's also really competitive. So like they'd be better off just being like, here's some ads, everybody, versus trying to build out a whole new vertical. And don't F around and don't find out, throw money into content. They could just keep on doing what they're doing and just like keep on throwing money into shows. Wall Street probably won't be like super stoked about that, but it does help them keep their company ethos of like never having advertisements. So it depends on how they want to be perceived, how elastic they think consumer opinion. And this gets into the meta question around Fang. So Fang is Facebook meta 
whatever. Facebook, Meta, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, and Google, also known as Alphabet. And this is the mighty tech industry. And with them taking a tumble, so does the rest of tech. And so I think this gets into the bigger question, consumer spending too. So like are people are beginning to cut back on spending. What does that mean for GDP growth? So I think Netflix sort of toppling is a meta question in two senses. So is this sort of a slowdown of the high flying, high tech growth industry that we've seen over the past couple of years? And also is this a sign of consumer pain and people like just not just not vibing with a pretty hostile environment to try and save money in. So I think those are going to be two things to like watch out for is like how the tech industry proceeds after Netflix taking this tumble and then also how GDP growth in the economy <laughs> after all of this. I think this could be a flashing red bell similar to the yield curve, Netflix. So the yen and global consequences, this is kind of a big shift. I actually didn't really make a quadrant for this because I didn't really know how to categorize. So basically in this one, the yen is weakening through a combination of monetary policy and Japan's trade deficit. Their imports jumped 31%. The Bank of Japan is like really trying to make stuff okay. They're like, we're going to buy unlimited amounts of Japanese government bonds, but the market's like not super happy about that because you have monetary policy divergence and then you have this huge, huge trade deficit. And the U.S. is in this tightening regime where the Fed's like, oh, we're going to raise interest rates. Japan is like, oh my God, we got to like speed stuff up a little bit. And Japan has always been in a form of stagflation because of their demographic situation, because of how they're situated import-export wise. And there's a lot of problems with this monetary policy divergence. Like when you first hear it, you're like, oh, why is it a big deal? There's a difference. Like who really cares that much? And the important part about this is the relationship between the yen and the dollar. So J Japan is a huge buyer of U.S. treasuries. And if all of a sudden Japanese investors are like, wow, it's the yen is so weak against the dollar. It doesn't really make sense for me to try and buy U.S. treasuries anymore. It's too expensive. That's not good for the United States because who is going to buy those treasuries? All of a sudden that demand flow trickles up. You have sort of this compounding effect of the tightening monetary policy regime in the United States where the Fed is going to start shrinking their balance sheet plus Japanese investors no longer buying U.S. treasuries and so you got like a double whammy for the United States there and that could become a little bit messy for the U.S. debt market. Adam Tews wrote about this and he was like this divergence in monetary policy could be more impactful to the U.S. dollar than the weaponization of the U.S. dollar so the fact that if all of a sudden the key buyer of U.S. treasuries is like, goodbye, it's a little expensive for us. That's really not good. And that could put pressure on the dollar in terms of reserve currency. As he wrote, the uncoordinated response of central banks to that pressure will prove to be more significant test of the dollar system than the fumbling efforts by Russia and its trading partners to find alternatives to the dollar. And also a weak yen is damaging Japan's economy. Probably the most important one is how the Japanese people are experiencing this. And that's sort of not good all around. And there's really only one option here unless the Fed completely pivots in my mind where you have to F around and find out. And it's once again, domestic protectionism coming front and center where you have central banks making these decisions relative, of course, to their internal economies. We're seeing a lot of divergence across the board there. And zooming out even more, we're starting to see the consequences of debt-fueled growth. So China is owed 65% of government-to-government -government lending, which is a lot of money. Developing nations can simply no longer afford their debt burdens anymore. So you have these emerging market nations that are taking out, it's not even that much debt. Like I think it's $35 billion in total. And of course, Elon is trying to buy Twitter for 43 billion. It's just like really interesting. When you sit back and you think about the numbers, this is a broken record of sorts where people are like, all we need to do is just pay a bunch of money and we'll solve homelessness in the United States. And it's of course not that easy, right? Because emerging market nations, you can't just like throw money. That's not how foreign aid works. But it's interesting to like sit back and be like, 
dang, we got some capital allocation problems. This gets into economic fragmentation. The IMF managing director came out the other day and was like, the war in Ukraine has also increased the risk of a more permanent fragmentation of the world economy into geopolitical blocks. It also represents a major challenge to the rule-based framework that has governed international and economic relations for the last 70 years. She highlighted that we're facing a crisis on top of a crisis, a pandemic, a war, economic turmoil, food shortages, an energy crisis, and just boatloads of debt. And there's fragmentation on the individual level too. I kind of talked about this a little bit last week where we have this sense of nihilism where people are like, it's just not worth it. It's just not worth it anymore. I'm never going to get what I want. It sucks. Martin Gurry, I hope I pronounced his last name right, but he is the author of The Revolt of the Public and a former CIA analyst. And he said in an interview with Vox, and he was highlighted in a really good Atlantic article called Why the Past 10 Years of American Life Have Been So Uniquely Stupid. And he said, the digital revolution has shattered that mirror and now the public inhabits those broken pieces of glass. So the public isn't one thing, it's highly fragmented and it's basically mutually hostile. It's mostly people yelling at each other or in living in bubbles around each other. The public only really unifies around what it rejects. This has a profound political consequence where people can't organize around a common ideal worldview, but they all seem to agree that they're pissed off and they're against the system. And he spoke at length about the elites and how they're pretty checked out and they're really not into, they really don't understand the problem of the everyday person because they're so insulated and how there's probably going to have to be a shift and how we manage a democracy and how we sort of run the nation. But the main problem is that a lot of people want change. Like if you talk to anybody, they're like, the system sucks, but nobody really knows the solution. And that is not good. And we don't really know what our social networks are, what our stories are, or what our institutions are doing. We don't know what to focus on. We don't know where to go. And there's a feeling of losing the narrative because we've existed in the extreme end of the distribution for such a long time, for like three years, we've had a pandemic, we have a war. And that's a lot for people to process. And it creates a sense of hopelessness because we're watching our systems erode in real time. We really are. I try not to be like super negative about the US government because like, hey, what's up? But it's sad. The fact that Congress is always in political gridlock and they're just so stupidly yelling at each other, both sides. I don't care like who you affiliate with, both sides, stupid. Whether that be from unresponsiveness to energy policy, where they don't care about our future, right? Or from feeling financially barred from home ownership, where I'll never achieve the American dream, or frustration at the system. As Martin said, we have a system built on the control of information that has increasingly lost its ability to control. And this gets, so energy policy, right? We can't have green energy policy without green energy investment. Gonna get that trademarked, because I've seen it used a couple of times recently. But I think that it's really fragmented and it's really sad where Reclaim Finance recently published a scorecard ranking asset managers on their commitment to green energy policy and like 23 of the 30 firms are doing more coal financing and all of them are like, hey, new oil and gas projects absolutely did. And none of the ESG mandates sort of applied to how we think about fossil fuel restrictions. And of course, we still need oil. That's part of the problem with the whole green energy investment and green energy policy thesis is that we have to have these systems still in place or else it's gonna not work and we're gonna be stuck. I get it, you get it, we all get it. We all know that the trade-off of energy is, is really bad. We are seeing it play out real time in Europe where it's like, okay, you can go to renewables, but they, they won't work. <laughs> they won't sustain your country. Even oil can be really tenuous. Like North Dakota just had a huge blizzard, knocked off 25% of their 
production of oil. Libya is in a political crisis and OPEC is underinvested and they're underproducing. And we're going to have to deal with coal, gas, or nuclear. And nuclear is probably one of the better options that we have, but the public interpretation of that is really poor. And there's also individual responsibility here too, where it's like, okay, sure, like the individual is, is, is responsible to try and be as green energy positive as they can be. But when you have corporations who are like, just dump that oil right into the ocean, it's not good. And home ownership is kind of tricky too. You have firms like Blackstone buying up student housing because it's an inflation hedge for them because they can charge students more in rent. And like, sure, maybe they're going to build more student housing and sure, they're going to build better homes or whatever. And sure, like the build rent homes that they're going to build or take over or, you know, it gives people housing. Housing as an inflation hedge for a huge, huge firm like them. It just feels like Okay, dude, we're in the middle of a housing crisis and you're talking about using it as an inflation edge. And it just like, this is the paradox of finance. Finance, at the end of the day, is about returns and it's about making money and it's about making money off other people most of the time. And sometimes that's good. Like Apple making new products, you're making money off Apple being successful, but then you're also making money off raising rents on students who are already cash strapped and that is not so good. And I think that is the paradox of capitalism, I suppose, where it's just difficult and people are backing away from purchasing homes and stability feels increasingly out of reach. Mortgage rates have skyrocketed and there's a huge gap between housing starts and finished homes. So even if you want a home, it's like, eh, it probably won't be built in time. Landlots that are supposed to be used for building homes are being taken over by these investment firms. It's a combination of policy, material and labor shortages, and more. And to many people, it just feels like the American dream is over. Like, I'm never going to be able to have stability. I'm never going to be able to own. And ownership is like how you build wealth, right? And it's just difficult. And all of that circles back to Gurry's point where you have these barbells where everybody's mad at the man, like whoever the heck that is, everybody's mad at the man and it's playing out differently, but the underlying response is the same. And I've written about this before. People are saying the same things, but in like different tones. So it sounds like they're saying different things, but they're actually like talking about the same points. Reconciliation it doesn't seem like an option because like you have these two groups that are just yelling at each other. And I really like Jonathan Haidt's ending to his Atlantic piece where he wrote, we cannot expect Congress and tech companies to save us. We must change ourselves and our communities. What would it be like to live in Babel in the days after its destruction? It's a time of confusion and loss, but it's also time to reflect, listen, and build. It's time to create new stories. It's time to reflect on the fundamental changes that have happened, a pandemic, a war, crypto ownership, wealth redistribution and concentration. And what we have doesn't work the way it was ever supposed to anymore. I think maybe it's time to F around and find out whatever that means. I don't know, everybody. So that was like a little deep and a little hopefully thought provoking, but that's how I'm feeling about things. And that's the F around and find out quadrant. Hopefully you can apply that into your life, but just remember to try and f around and, and find out as best you can. So I thank you so much for hanging out. You can find me on Substack, kyla.substack.com. Find me on Instagram, find me on Twitter, find me on all the platforms. But yeah, hope that you're doing well. Hope that you're having fun. Thanks for hanging out. I'll talk to you all soon. Bye.